welcome back to the Black Unicorn Podcast. Welcome back to the Black Unicorn Podcast, your weekly podcast for all things Black history. I'm your host, Akasa, aka the Black Unicorn. And today, 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 we have three revolutionary groups you may not know about. So stay tuned. For today's topic, we are going to be discussing the Silverton Siege and the militant group behind it. On January 25, 1980, three MKs, Stephen Mafoko, Humphrey Makubu, and Wilford Mandela, held 25 civilians in Volkoch Bank in Silverton, Pretoria. They made a number of demands, but not for the reasons you may think a person that holds up a bank would. The group that led the siege was Umkanto We Sesli. I hope I said that right. If I didn't, let me know. Are the MK for short, and that is Kosa for Spear of a Nation. They were a political military faction co-founded by Mandela that fought the South African government when peaceful demonstrations for apartheid were met with violence. The group was on their way to carry out a planned MK sabotage mission on petrol depots in Watlu near Mamelodi. After realizing they were being followed by cops, their plans derailed their path to Volkash Bank. Demands were made such as meeting with the state president, Boaster, the release of Nelson Mandela, $100,000 in cash, and an aircraft to fly them to Mamelodi. After six hours of standoff with police, the police stormed the bank, killing all three of the Sesui members and a couple of hostages. The Silverton siege happened in the beginnings of the Free Mandela movement. But let's go back to the birth of the MK. The African National Congress, aka the ANC, the South African Communist Party, along with other groups, came together to fight against a white minority government. They started off with a passive resistance and nonviolence, but efforts were not effective. Even though there was success in in the defiance campaign of 1952, the failure of making impactful political change led them to changing their stance on peace to violence. Along with events that happened throughout the country, the most significant part that played in their change was the Sharpeville Massacre in 1960, where the government opened fire on a peaceful protest that led to more than 200 Africans being shot down. At that point, the ANC, as well as Nelson Mandela, were fed up. Chief Luthuli, who led the secret meeting about the MK, suggested that the military movement should be a separate and independent organ, linked and under the overall control of the ANC, but fundamentally autonomous. After a night of arguments, the ANC and other groups at the meeting decided to create the MK as their military wing. Nelson Mandela of the ANC and Joe Slovo of the 
SACP were mandated to form the new organization. The MK set up regional commands in the main cities. The people chosen to be a part of these commands were chosen either because they had the necessary technical or military skills or because they were members of the Congress Alliance organizations. Many of the members of the MK weren't equipped in military tactics or even owned a pistol. Jack Hoganson, appointed to the Johannesburg Military Command of the, of the MK, showed them the ropes. The first phase of armed action was to be in December 1961 to sabotage a campaign against government installations. The MK were instructed to avoid attacks that would lead to injury and loss of life. The MK, as well as the imprisonment of Nelson Mandela, sparked both domestic and international attention. And like the Silverton siege, the MK helped bring attention to the release of Nelson Mandela. He was released about 10 years after the Silverton siege event. So for our second topic, we are going to be discussing the Brothers, a black militant group out of Albany, New York. They were influenced by the Black Panthers and Malcolm X. The group consisted of 15 core members, but as many as 75 considered themselves a part of the Brothers. They also published a newspaper called the Albany Liberator for four years. The Brothers was an outgrowth of the South End Neighborhood Association led by George Bunch, Leon Van Dyke, and Earl Thorpe. After their request for better living conditions for Blacks fell on deaf ears at City Hall, the Brothers organization was formed. The Brothers held their first meeting in August 1966 at the Trinity Institution. The group enlisted Black people from the South End as well as Arbor Hill, both Black neighborhoods in Albany struggling with high unemployment and poverty. They set up their headquarters at Neville's Shoeshine Parlor, and Black leaders such as Stokey Carmichael and Eldridge Cleaver came and spoke. Unfortunately, the brothers' headquarters were met with violence. Bricks were thrown through their windows, cars passing by would shoot at the building, and parts of the property were destroyed and vandalized. Cops also harassed members of the brothers. They took surveillance of the brothers, tapped the phones, and arrested and charged them on false allegations that were later dropped. Mayor Corning also kept files on the members. Blacks were consistently shut out of trades and jobs. In 1968, there were only one Black bank clerk and one Black mailman in the city, where Blacks made up more than 10% of the population of 140,000. When Black construction workers were turned away at, at Union Hall, while white construction workers were getting hired, Leo, Leon Van Dyke organized a protest and started picketing construction sites. To combat the horrible living conditions, the brothers protested outside slumlords offices that owned buildings where they lived. They also collected 
jars of roaches from rundown apartments and release them at city hall meetings. The streets of South End and Arbor Hill also had trash issues, some dumped by outsiders due to not having any type of trash removal. They rounded up as many trash bags and took them to City Hall. By the time they left, South End and Arbor Hill had trash removal funded by the city. As the brothers gained media attention, they used their notoriety to pressure longtime Mayor Corning to improve living conditions for Blacks. They also demanded the end of police brutality, better jobs, schools, and access to health care. In the summer of 1966, the brothers protested politicians buying votes. Politicians would give Blacks as well as whites $5 to vote swaying voters in that politician's favor. They protested outside the mayor's home carrying signs that read, Aratus blast us again and don't sell your soul for $5. The Albany County District Attorney threatened to prosecute any politician involved. Fearing arrest, vote buying ended. The brothers also served as mediators when race conflicts rose throughout the country. In July of 1967, when a black woman pushing her baby in a stroller across the street was almost hit by a cop, riots broke out near the Palace Theater. The brothers are credited for calming the situation. The group disbanded in 1971 as members focused on hard-won jobs and their families, but let's not forget about the stamp that they made in the long battle for civil rights. For our final topic, we will be discussing MOVE, the movement that shook Philly. And trigger warning, there's a, a lot of violence caused by cops, by police. So if you are triggered by that, I suggest you skip to um, church announcements or just turn the show off altogether and take care of your mental health. MOVE isn't an acronym, but reflects the group's true intentions. Their intentions were to live in a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, and their beliefs stem from Black nationalism, Pan-Africanism, and the Black Power movement. They fought for Black people, animal and prisoner rights, community housing, clean and healthy eating, and growing your own food. John Africa, the leader of the group, said, Everything that is alive moves. If it didn't, it would be stagnant, dead. The group wore wore their hair in dreadlocks, influenced from the Rastafari religion, and changed their last name to Africa as an OD to the motherland. When the group publicly protests about racial, racial injustice and animal rights, it gained attention from police. Before the shootout on the night of March 28, 1976, some of the members were coming home from jail. During the celebration, hostile police came and beat Move with nightsticks. Janine Africa's one-month-old baby was knocked to the ground by police and her skull was crushed. 
Police denied the murder of the baby as well as the baby's existence and MOVE had to carry the dead baby's body to politicians to prove the crime. After that day, MOVE decided that they will protect themselves at all costs. The police presence around the neighborhood grew each day and the community started to get concerned. Tension grew between the group and the police as members of the movement patrolled the front of their home with guns. The city and the media worked together in shifting the city against MOVE. Newspapers like the Philadelphia Daily News reported on a number of articles about the cost of sieges police would act out on the group and overtime payments to officers for patrolling the group 24-7. This had an impact on how the city viewed the movement. The police put up a blockade and tried to starve the group out of their homes. They cut off utilities as well. The cops used cherry pickers to throw rocks at the house. Although the police said they put the blockade up to keep them in, the police kept members that weren't home out due to not having ID. People thought the blockade's real purpose was to keep as many people out. Jeanette Kingston opened her home to host meetings with different community members to see what they can do about stopping the police. The movement's only demand was their members be released from prison. The city wanted the movement to clean up their house or leave. Both fair demands, but the police tactics were inhumane. About a month later, the members ran out of food and water. Police only gave food for the children and not for the adults. MOVE gained national attention and organizers enlisted help from grassroots organization as well as businessmen, pastors, educators, and celebrities like Dick Gregory. The Amnesty International, an organization that monitors and reports on abuses done to humans around the world, was asked to investigate. City officials met with members of MOVE and asked how could they end this. Carlos Africa said, you have our demands, our people need to be released. News reported that the group had bombs and underground tunnels, but with no real evidence to support the claim. Police conducted a search for weapons at the MOVE compound to see if they had any more weapons. What the search showed was that there weren't any real illegal weapons and they only found damaged weapons. Police finally met MOVE's demands. They also included a stipulation that there would be a 90-day truce that made the neighborhood peaceful again. On the 91st day, however, Sheldon Albert triggered a whole new war between the city and MOVE by saying, on the 91st day, we intend to tear down those two buildings, meaning the MOVE house and the neighboring house. One of the agreements was that the group could stay in the house until they were able to move. Mayor Rizzo argued that they only gave them until August 1st to stay in the house. They needed time to find a home for the animals and themselves. They asked for an extension, but they were denied by the state. On August 8th, the police decided to try to move in on the group. 
Five to six hundred people and the media surrounded the move house, making police stop all plans. The police started to move the media away, unfortunately. One reporter knocked on doors of neighbors and, and was let into a second floor apartment of a college student. He filmed from the window facing the moved house. There were over 600 cops that were heavily armed. They knocked the barrier down that surrounded the house with a bulldozer. Walt Palmer led police in to defuse the situation, but the police had other plans. Police wanted to know exactly where the group was in the house and poured gallons of water in the home and drowned them to drown them out when not only adults, but kids were in the basement. Move was then smoked out with tear gas in the basement, thus leading the members to come out. Joseph O'Neill, the police commissioner, claimed they didn't use tear glass due to small children being in the home. More members came out with their children and the ones without were beat by police. Davida Johnson came out with her two children and was immediately arrested. Her clothes were so hot that they were sticking to her body. After the dust settled, the building was immediately demolished. A total of 11 members of MOVE were locked up. The media continued to focus on reporting on what happened to the police and put MOVE and the community that, that surrounded them in a bad light while members of MOVE were severely injured and supporters were harassed by police. Police continued to lie about their actions even when video evidence contradicted their statements. Protests broke out, particularly against Mayor Rizzo. Reporters that filmed the incident released the fo footage to the public. George Perry, assistant district attorney of the police brutality unit, started an investigation after seeing the footage of the police beating Delbert Africa. A warrant was issued for the officers involved to be arrested, but the judge that was over the case found them not guilty without even seeing all the evidence. Unfortunately, the police never stopped harassing MOVE. And on May 13, 1985, they killed 11 members of MOVE. Unexpected, Hundreds of cops stormed Osage Ave where they lived. Police commissioner told them they had 15 minutes to come out. Move didn't want to come out, suspecting the police wanted to kill them. And just like the 1979 shootout, water hoses and tear gas was used. When they tried to get out, they were shot at, pushing the group right back in the house. After a few minutes of silence, a bomb was dropped by the Philadelphia police. The house caught on fire, but the fire commissioner let the fire spread, burning two blocks of 61 houses. The fire burned for over an hour and a half before firefighters put it out. Five children and six adults were murdered that day and no one was arrested for this tragedy. 
In fact, everything that the police did, Ramona Africa, the only MOVE member that survived the bombing, was charged with and served seven years in prison. Nothing the MOVE movement did justified anything that the Philadelphia police did to them. Members of MOVE have either died in prison or spent a good amount of their life in prison. Mike and Debbie Africa were released from prison in 2018. The rest of the living in prison members have been eligible for parole but denied release. Ramona Africa and family members of the two people that were killed in the bombing are, I'm sorry, two of the people that were killed in the bombing were awarded $1.5 million in this civil suit. The city of Philadelphia has paid upwards of $27.3 million in legal fees and the cost of rebuilding the houses that were destroyed. The MOVE group as a whole was award, awarded $2.5 million in a wrongful death deaths of their children. On top of that, the remains of two MOVE children were found in the possession of the University of Pennsylvania's Penn Museum and Princeton University. The museum exhibited the remains to graduate students, donors, and the museum personnel on at least 10 different occasions between 2014 and 2019. The remains were returned to the Africa family, but some of those remains that were unidentified are still in the possession of the museum for quote-unquote investigation. In conclusion, I hope the Africa family has nothing but peace, nothing but love in their life right now. Their family went through so much, and I won't be surprised if there is more that is uncovered about their story. I hope they get justice for everything that the police did. I hope that everything comes to light. I hope the right people uh, find (laughs) these files and lock whoever they need to up the police commissioner all those people. So. so it's now time for church announcements. So a couple things. Um, we went over the MK. So I want you to go look at the Silverton Siege. Um, that is the movie based on the uh, real life Silver- Silverton Siege that the MK was a part of um it's on netflix right now so you can stream it um if you still have it because i heard the girls are leaving netflix (laughs) um secondly the brothers um they have an exhibit it's called the forgotten struggle for silver rights so if you are in albany new york you can go see that exhibit um lastly well not lastly but 
as far as the topics today, if you want to learn more about the MOVE movement, um, you can watch The 40 Years a Prisoner on HBO. It's a really good documentary. I got so much information from there. And um, with all the topics, I'll have all the... uh, you know, references that you can look up yourself and learn more about these stories. So, um, I just saw a trailer before I even recorded called Emergency. (laughs) Go look up the trailer and see and tell me what you think. Um, it's way it's starring RJ Seiler. He was in The Heart of They Fall and, um, what else was he was in? He was in Power Rangers too. He, he's funny. Um, it looks interesting. It's about a college, college students that want to party hop, but they find a white woman in their dorm. Now these are black college students, so black male college students, and they find a white woman in their dorm, um, passed out. So let me know what you think. I was a little iffy about it, but you know, it's still a black movie, so. I'm trying to think why. I, I have to think about why it kind of bothers me <laughs> that this is a movie, but I don't know. Let me know what y'all think about the trailer. Anyway, it's coming out uh, May 27th on Amazon Prime. Okay, uh, next, a judge rules to move forward with the Tulsa Race Massacre Survivors lawsuit. Um, this lawsuit is... Um, for the people of Tulsa, Oklahoma, the survivors of Tulsa, um, they are seeking reparations for the descendants of the victims of the massacre. So uh, hopefully that goes well. I'll keep you guys updated. I definitely want to follow this story. Hopefully everything goes good, um, you know, because they deserve it. They really do. Excuse me. Um, Legendary. If y'all watch Legendary, I'm so excited for this. But if y'all watch Legendary, it is coming back for its third season. I think this is the third season. I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah, third season. Um, It comes out May 19th. Excuse me. <clears throat> May 19th on HBO. Uh, They have a new host, Kiki Palmer. I'm so excited for her because she's funny. She is very funny. Um, unfortunately, making the style, you won't be there, but, you know, changes, <laughs> I guess. Um, a new trailer for The Gray Man came out starring Reggie Jean Page. He was in Bridgerton. It comes out on Netflix, uh, on Netflix, July 22nd. So, sorry guys, I'm so tired right now. I'm trying to get through this. <laughs> Uh, but I will prevail. Um, prayers up for making the stallion. I saw her interview with Gail King. She discussed the incident with Tory Lanez. Um, at this point, I don't understand why people keep on thinking she's lying because she has evidence, and even the the Los Angeles district attorney said, we believe the evidence substantially supports the charges and the allegations and that evidence will be born in court, out of court. I'm sorry. Um, so yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, I definitely believe Megan now. At first I was just like, I don't, I don't really want to be involved with this because it's a lot. And you know how dramatic people are. 
But after hearing like so much about this and how Tory Lanez has been acting, I don't understand how anybody could believe that man. So, but it keeps on getting pushed back. That's that's annoying. I think the next court date is like later on this year, like August or some shit. Well, you know that that's in a couple months, so it's not even that serious. But still, it's it's been a long battle. I hope like this last date that they scheduled for is the last date that <laughs> that this woman is gonna be in court because this is drawn the fuck out. Um, also, let's see. And Janet Hubert is uh um I'm sorry. They are starring in a movie called Remember Me. The Mahalia Jackson story. So I'm excited to see Jenna Huber act again. I was wondering if she was going to be in Fresh Prince, the new Fresh Prince on Peacock. Um, and I hope she's in the second season. So I would love to see her. But yeah, I'm, I'm excited of her acting again. Um, but yeah, that's it, y'all. I hope y'all enjoyed the show. Let me know um, what you think about it rate review it subscribe it's on apple apple podcast spotify anchor i'm trying to figure out a way to get it on title but you know i'll figure that shit out <laughs> but y'all have a good week stay safe uh bye